Thank you. It's a, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad I made it on time. There was a little, a little concern that the, the plane was, was running late. LaGuardia is kind of a nightmare to get out of. Um, what I want to talk about today is, is, uh, is U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, and it's obviously appropriate because Bush is beginning his, his tour of Latin America, which the New York Times just had a front-page article on, kind of presenting it as a way of repairing and thinking about the, what the U.S. does in Latin America. And um, I'm going to talk about the main arguments of my book, Empire's Workshop. And, and the way I like to think of that book is um, a different way of thinking of the U.S. in Latin America. I think there's two main ways in which scholars or observers um, look at U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. One, the long history of U.S. involvement in Latin America obviously uh, raises a lot of criticism. So people often look at Latin America as a place, uh, U.S. role in actions in Latin America as a place to test the United States' ideals to its actions. And usually the U.S. comes up short and there's any number of exposés about the U.S.'s uh, baleful legacy in Latin America, supporting coups and, and, uh, and death squad states and, and uh, other, other sorts of interventions. Um, the second main way, I think, is uh, as a result of that history is that it forces observers into a debate about what drives U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. Critics uh, from the left or progressive critics tend to focus on economic issues and, and interests, and while, while not so much, a, well, we could use the word apologists, but defenders of U.S. foreign policy, people less critical, tend to look more at the, at the ideological motivations, particularly during the Cold War, anti-communism as a real concern, if not overblown, uh, as what drives U.S. foreign policy. But I think there's another way uh, of looking at U.S. foreign policy in Latin America that's a little bit more instructive to understanding the current moment. And that's thinking about U.S. foreign policy at, in Latin America as having a real impact on structuring the and, and, and generating and, and, and helping to coalesce America's foreign policy establishments. America, and, and, um, and, and, and twice last century, I guess the main argument of the book, so, so what I look at Latin America as the place that has a real impact on domestic politics within the U.S., in, 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 in helping to bring together different foreign policy coalitions and then, and then the way those coalitions then act in the rest of the world. Um, particularly uh, twice last century, uh, the main argument of the book is, is twice last century that the United States turned to Latin America to regroup following moments of global crisis. Uh, moments that kind of crippled its ability to project its, uh, its, its power outside of its borders. Uh, the first time uh, was in the 1930s um, in the face of rising uh, Latin American opposition, increasingly militant opposition to U.S. militarism, and mostly in the Caribbean and Central America, uh, along with obviously the great uh, economic contraction of the Great Depression, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and, and, and his New Deal Brain Trust turned to Latin America proclaiming the, the good neighbor policy, which in effect kind of provided a blueprint uh, for what political scientists like to call soft power, uh, which after World War II uh, allowed the U.S. to climb to unprecedented uh, heights of global command. Um, there's, I, I don't really have time, but I want to focus on the, on the second instance in which a foreign policy coalition turned to Latin America for the bulk of the talk, bulk of my comments here. But the New Deal coalition, all, many of the, of, the, of the ideas, alliances, and strategies that that, that 
we could place under the rubric of liberal multilateralism uh, really took shape in Latin America. The, 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 the principle of non-intervention, Roosevelt's embrace of the principle of non-intervention, which actually uh, was a long-standing demand of Latin American jurists and politicians. It didn't just spring out of his head or his advisor's head. Uh, kind of set the groundwork for the United States' ability to recover and, and allowed, allowed the United States uh, to sign a series of economic treaties which, which, which helped the recovery of, uh, the, of the U.S. economy, particularly after that first phase of New Deal economics, which was, uh, which was more kind of social de democracy turning inward. Once that failed and, and recovery really was about, about reestablishing a kind of export-driven economy, a kind of economic recovery allowed by the goodwill of the good neighbor policy consolidated this kind of corporate block, East Coast corporate block, uh, export-oriented, uh, that, that became the foundation of the New Deal state. Um, the series of multilateral institutions, the OAS, as, as a model in many ways for the UN, or the Rio Pact, which was a Latin American multi, uh, mutual defense uh, uh, alliance, was, was, a, was, a, um, was a model, a direct model for NATO. Uh, this kind of regional alliance system based on the principles of multilateralism in which intervention was now going to be through multilateral agreement uh, became, I argue in the book in, in more detail than I will here, becomes a kind of model that the United States helps put into place elsewhere after World War II. Uh, the, 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 the goodwill established with the good neighbor policy allowed, kind of steeled Roosevelt's aspirations to global militarism, uh, to global leadership, allowing him to kind of really confront, begin to confront um, rising militarism in Europe and Asia. Uh, his tour of Latin America in 1936, in which tens of thousands of people poured out into the streets to celebrate him as a shepherd of democracy, as the normally uh, skeptical Argentine press put it, kind of really was, I think, a turning point. And it was a very consequential moment, the good neighbor policy. So even, even as the spirit of, of, of multilateralism or the non-intervention policy was violated after World War II in Latin America. Elsewhere, it became at least the formal model for, for, for liberal internationalism, soft power. So I think the irony is, is fairly obvious that it took decades of, of, of rising antagonism from Latin America, including armed insurgencies against U.S.'s occupations in Dominican Republic and in, in Haiti and Nicaragua, particularly in Nicaragua, widespread criticism among Latin American internationalists to force the United States to embrace a model of diplomacy that then allowed it to climb to unprecedented heights of, uh, of, of, of command after World War II. <clears throat> then the second great coalition, political coalition of the 20th century, <clears throat> likewise turned to Latin America, likewise following a serious crisis, or in this case, cascading crises which limited U.S. power, and that was the rising new right, the rising conservative moment, the new right coalition, uh, turned to Latin America in response to the kind of cascading crises of the 1970s, political in the case of Watergate, militarily in the case of the de defeat in Southeast Asia, economically with the, with the crisis, the post-Fortis crisis, and also, and also the kind of just general kind of malaise and, and culture of skeptical dissent and anti-authoritarianism that, that seemed to have come over the United States in the 1970s. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit of, in detail about this, but that New Right Coalition, that Reagan Revolution, which came to power in 1980, turns to Latin America, but particularly to Central America, uh, this time to kind of 
junk the liberal multilateral or begin the junking of the liberal multilateral order and to rehabilitate not soft power but hard power. Now, the new right alliance that emerged from, uh, from, from this turn proved to be remarkably coherent. It brought together the two main currents that, that, give, that, that, that gives today's militarism, I argue, that gives the Bush doctrine both its intellectual legitimacy and its grassroots energy, and that's uh, neoconservatives and the religious right. I think it's not just, as is often asserted, a, a shared defense of Israel uh, that binds neocons, secular neocons, and the religious right theocons together, but rather a common set of assumptions about the world and America's role in it. Uh, a mistrust of multilateral negotiation, a belief that evil exists as a motivating force in human affairs, an ethical conviction that U.S. military supremacy be used to confront that evil, uh, a drive, importantly, a drive to restore to the executive branch the power to, to stage such a confrontation, unencumbered by all the judicial and congressional oversights uh, placed on the executive branch, placed on the presidency in the 1970s and late 1960s, 1970s, um, and then also a celebration of the free market as a site of creativity, human fulfillment, and moral discipline. Uh, it was in Central America, in other words, where civilian and religion, mil religious militarists launched I, what I would argue and what I do argue in the book was the first battle in a broader campaign that, that, that led, to straight, uh, led to war, straight to war in Iraq. Uh, since even before 9-11, we've seen a whole parade of old Central American hands being recycled to help Bush's foreign policy and then after 9-11 to fight the global war on terror. There's John Negroponte, who's... Uh, was the ambassador to Honduras and helped preside over the Contra War. He's implicated in a number of death squad, uh, death squad killings implicated. Otto Reich, uh, Robert Gates, even Robert Gates, uh, John Bolton was in the Defense Department, uh, Justice Department, and, um, and he, he blocked congressional inquiries into Iran-Contra in the 1980s. Elliot Abrams, uh, the Kagan clan, uh, even Dick Cheney and David Addington were involved on the periphery of Iran-Contra. Uh, David Adding being, being uh, Cheney's uh, current chief of staff who replaced uh, uh, Scooter Libby and one of the key architects in, in, in the kind of rehabilitation, uh, legitimation of the imperial presidency of a strong executive branch during wartime and in matters of national security. Um, but the links between the current Bush administration and, and Bush administration's post-9-11 revolution in foreign policy and Central America, I would argue, are even more profound than these, this simple recycling of personnel. Over the last year, there's been a number of books that have, uh, that have been published that have sought to take the measure of the Bush administration's expansive post-9-11 foreign policy. In, in particular, they've tried to account for this strange mixture of realism, uh, kind of unapologetic assertion that it is Washington's right to use preemptive violence to respond to perceived threats, and idealism, a belief that it is, in Bush's words, America's duty uh, to spread freedom throughout the world, to rid the world of evil, uh, a mix that somehow allows Bush to claim that we're in a war for civil, a struggle for civilization, as he put it, even as he pushes uh, for expanded power to torture. There's been, for instance, Francis Fukuyama's book on the neocons, Kevin Phillips' book on the religious right. Others have written on militarists and, and free marketeers. But I think the missing link of, of uh, what, the, what's missing from all of these books and the place that 
where they all came together is, is, is Reagan's Central American Wars of the 1980s. Uh, just a quick gloss on them included the patronage of the Contras in Nicaragua, uh, and uh, as well as vicious counterinsurgent states in El Salvador and Guatemala. It resulted in enormous deaths, 70,000 in El Salvador, 30,000, 30 to 40,000 in Nicaragua just from the, just, just during the Contra period. Um, and, uh, and Guatemala was probably the worst, uh, 200,000 over the course of that country's um, counterinsurgency. Now, oftentimes Central America is seen as kind of an anomaly to Reagan's foreign policy, but despite his rhetoric, he actually was quite restrained. He negotiated with Gorbachev. He, he allowed sanctions to be placed on South Africa with some reluctance. He pulled out of, pulled out of Beirut. But I guess what I try to do in the book is, is, is restore the centrality of Central America as, as a bridge war in many ways, as, as the first place, as kind of dress rehearsal for the new right. It's a way of under, uh, understanding how, how, the, how today's foreign policy coalition, or at least up until recently, a, a, what was a relatively coherent coalition made up of neoconservatives, Christian evangelicals, and, and nationalists that today stand behind George Bush first came together. It was in Central America where they had free reign to bring the full power of the U.S. against a much weaker enemy in order to exercise the ghost of Vietnam and in so doing begin the transformation of America's foreign policy and its domestic culture as well. Now, in 1981, Gene Kirkpatrick, who was Reagan's uh, ambassador to the UN, called Central America, I love this quote, the most important place in the world for the United States, critically important. There's a lot of things going on in 1981 for the United States. Uh, but for some reason, uh, Central America was deemed the most important place by, 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 by Kirkpatrick. Now, many at the time were hard-pressed to count for such an evaluation, such an inflation of value. They were equally perplexed by Reagan's refusal to negotiate an end by what all reasonable judgment were minor conflicts, by his willingness to pursue his objectives to the point of provoking a constitutional crisis, and by his insistence that support for anti-communist allies uh, responsible for the murder and torture of hundreds of thousands of individual civilians was a matter of principle, a matter of keeping faith with American ideals. Central America's importance, it turns out, was its unimportance. Even as he acted with moderation in other, other areas of the world, Reagan could give Central America to the movement conservatives who, helped brought, him, who, who brought him to power. Um, without any fear of consequences, with little fear of consequences. Uh, their hard line there was in many ways a form of wish fulfillment for the diverse constituencies of the gathering new right, how they hoped Reagan uh, would, and the United States would deal with other th trouble spots. As a staffer in Jesse Helms's office, and Jesse Helms's office was responsible for vetting uh, many of the foreign policy appointments, particularly when it came to Latin America, uh, he said they, meaning movement conservatives, uh, they can't have the Soviet Union or, or, or the Middle East or Western Europe. All are too important, so they've given them Central America. Now, in retrospect, democratic and public opposition to Reagan's Central American policy, which, which was strong, consistently strong, consist consistently a majority of, of public opinion uh, opposed Reagan's policy in El Salvador and Nicaragua, uh, proved to be a blessing in disguise for the conservative movement. It forced the White House to rely on its social base to execute its off-the-books uh, Nicaraguan uh, Contra War, thus beginning to thicken the connections between diverse new right groups. Groups It created a dense uh, network of action intellectuals, 
political organizations and social movements and uniting mainstream conservatives with milit militants from the carnivalesque right. Urbane sophisticates such as Jean Kirkpatrick made common cause with soldier of fortune mer mercenaries, sunbelt evangelicals like Pat Robinson and end timers like Tim Timothy LaHaye, who long before he hit the bestseller list with his Left Behind series, was, 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 was promoting Reagan's Central American crusade to the evangelical rank and file. In Washington, the first generation of neoconservative intellectuals, some names that I mentioned earlier, Elliot Abrams, John Negroponte, Otto Reich, in alliance, uh, Robert Kagan, in alliance with politicized Vietnam vets, politicized to the right like Oliver North and, and John Singlab and, and, and others, uh, Secord, Richard Secord, created a, a kind of both administration and extra administration uh, interagency war party that allowed them to move forward with support for the Contras despite congressional and state and state department opposition, moderates in the state department. It's kind of you see a lot of sh uh, foreshadowing of, 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 of debates and conflicts now in, uh, around Iraq, around the state department and and uh, and, and and the administration. Uh, in the field, Reagan Central American wars reactivated CIA and defense counterinsurgent operatives who had been deskbound since the U.S. was defeated in Southeast Asia, uh, began to coordinate their work with private mercenaries, conservative, often evangelical money men, and a rising Christian fundamentalist movement. So even as the military high command was taking a num number of steps after Vietnam uh, to prevent another Vietnam from happening, beginning to elaborate what would become known as the Weinberger and then the Powell Doctrine, uh, defining the use, limiting the use of American troops to clearly defined objectives, not for kind of an open-ended political campaign uh, with a clear, clear exit strategy. In Central America, civilian ideologues and militarists were pushing in the other direction. In El Salvador, they began to fund, they were funding what became, what was the largest nation-building counterinsurgency since Vietnam, and in Nicaragua, they were moving American diplomacy away from containment to rollback, advancing a vision of military power used not for specific ends with a clear exit strategy, but to launch what neoconservatives today, or until at least recently, called a, a democratic global revolution. Now, for the ascendant conservative uh, movement, it was not enough to rehabilitate militarism and project it into the third world. Defeat in Vietnam... Uh, along with Watergate and inquiries into U.S. involvement in the third world, its support for coups and covert operations, assassinations, military dictatorships, the Church Commission report, for instance, Rockefeller Commission report in terms of U.S. Uh, domestic covert operations against, against, uh, against domestic dissenters, uh, Cy Hirsch's investigation, investigative pieces into U.S.'s over, uh, involvement in the overthrow of Allende, uh, as well as any number of similar inquiries and, 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 and uh, studies, help began to spread a culture of skeptical anti-militarism <laughs> and political dissent. It provoked a moral crisis. Uh, the task of the new right was, then was to reestablish American diplomacy on an ethical foundation, right? Not just to rehabilitate militarism, but to justify that militarism in ever more idealist terms. And I think this is the most immediate roots of that strange mix of idealism and realism that I talked about earlier that, that, that is one of the highlights of the Bush Doctrine. Now commentators uh, in the wake of, 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 of the of post 9-11 have had uh, difficulty accounting for this Republican embrace of idealism in foreign policy. 
which from Woodrow Wilson to John Kennedy had long been the property of the Democratic Party. Pundits correctly identify a rhetorical shift taking place some, some, sometime during Ronald Reagan's tenure, reflecting his efforts to restore America's pride and purpose after the melancholy 1970s. Yet they consistently ignore the one place where Republicans turn themselves into what neocons like to call, or again, until recently, hard Wilsonians, and that was in Central America, before using human rights in negotiations with the Soviet Union, before taking steps to promote democratic change in Eastern Europe, and before nudging friendly dictators in the Philippines and South Korea to, uh, to allow for free election, the White House in El Salvador co-opted the language of human rights uh, from the Democratic Party to justify patronage of what was essentially a death squad government. And in Nicaragua, the, the Reagan administration uh, radically transformed diplomatic protocol by demanding that internal, re that the Sandinistas adopt internal reform, that they, that they not just not, that they don't just not fund or arm Salvadoran insurgents or Guatemalan insurgents or, or that, they, that, they, that they undergo internal restructuring, democratic elections, human rights, some kind of human rights standard. This was a, this was a kind of a shift in, in, in the logic of diplomacy and in many ways obviously foreshadows the erosion of national of sovereignty as a, as a diplomatic, uh, as a kind of diplomatic barrier uh, that happened in the 1990s. All you have to do is contrast Vietnam for this kind of embrace of idealism it's great embrace of um, as justification of foreign policy. All you have to do is contrast Vietnam to Central America. In Vietnam, as the war progressed, and as, as U.S. actions grew both more damned and more 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 violent, uh, idealism slowly drained out of or quickly drained out of Washington's foreign policy pronouncements. By the war's end, Nixon rarely justified the conflict in terms of promoting democracy, but rather by the need to save face and protect national security. In Central America, the exact opposite happened. Uh, in the face of mounting evidence of atrocities by U.S. allies in Central America, particularly the Contras and the Salvadoran military, followed by scandals associated by the Iran-Contra affair, Reagan, in his fights with Congress to fund the Contras and to defend his Salvador policy, um, consistently upped the ethical ante, the moral ante. He famously anointed the Contras to be the moral equivalent of America's founding fathers, who among us, he asked Congress in 1986, would tell these brave young men and women, your dream is dead, uh, your democratic revolution uh, is over, you will never live in a free Nicaragua you've fought so hard to build. It was Reagan who, uh, who rehabilitated in many ways the idealistic Abraham Lincoln for the Republican Party. It was Reagan who uh, also, in, in his fights over contra, pol uh, contra policy, uh, kind of embraced people like Thomas Paine, really embracing the language of revolution and insurgency, democratic insurgency. He even had the nerve to, to claim spiritual kinship with the real Sandino, as opposed to, as opposed to the Sandinistas, as a real nationalist, a real democratic nationalist, a revolutionary nationalist who fought for Nicaraguan sovereignty which, of course, is ironic for anybody who knows anything about Nicaraguan history. So by the end of the 1980s, the new right had achieved a remarkable revolution in the mechanics and the morals of, of low-intensity warfare, the rehabilitation of militarism in the third world, not just rehabilitating hard power, but then justifying it in, in highly idealized, uh, vaunting, vaulting language. But one important obstacle still remained, in 1984, the Pentagon's legal advisor, William O'Brien, complained of what he called, quote, the unrelenting anti-militarism of the American home front, 
whose distaste for things like torture, assassinations, dead or wounded children, and starvation as a means of combat continued to handicap American actions in the world. More than any other 20th century conflict, now obviously this unrelenting anti-militarism largely came out of Vietnam, Vietnam highlighted the porous border between domestic and foreign policy. Escalating protests, much of it linked to a reinvigorated internationalism, not only helped end the war, but led to legislative measures that curbed the power of, of, of government security institutions, most notably the CIA. In what seemed like a remarkably short period of time, the institutional pillars of society, uh, universities, churches, newspapers, movies, Congress, the courts, that had previously upheld, buttressed government authority, now pushed against it, creating what what neocons came to deride as a permanent adversarial culture. Now, the backlash to this adversarial culture, to these challenges, was broad and all-encompassing, reaching into every nook of American politics and culture. Yet a key element of that backlash, the restoration of the power of the executive branch to wage unaccountable war and everything that goes with it in terms of national security, uh, first took place in the fight over Reagan's Central American policy. Uh, just as Hawks used Central America to go on the offensive abroad, they took the opportunity uh, provided by the conflict to rehearse techniques to contain dissent at home in ways that continue to resonate today and in ways that I think were very familiar to anybody who uh, paid attention to the buildup to the war in Iraq and the fallout of the occupation of Iraq. The new right came to power in 1980, committed, uh, as I said, to rolling back restrictions placed by Congress, Carter's Justice Department, on the FBI and the CIA, as well as the Warren Court's uh, extension of civil liberties. It laid out a program that foreshadowed, in many ways, many of the provisions uh, today found in the Patriot Act in post-9-11 initiatives to restructure the intelligence system, especially in a call uh, for interagency file sharing between domestic FBI and, and the foreign CIA. Uh, this is in, in, for instance, the Heritage Foundation's uh, blueprint for the Reagan Doctrine, which many, which was identified as a kind of governing, a working plan for the Reagan administration mandate for change. A big, had a, had a fairly large section on the need to kind of confront these restrictions that, that, that they felt was crippling law enforcement, both domestic and foreign. Now, at the time, the reforms proved too, too radical to implement at the time, uh, even if today they seem like commonplace provisions within the Patriot Department and any random Justice Department memo. Uh, but the, at the time, in the early 80s, they were too radical to implement. So conservative organizations specifically called for monitoring of solidarity organizations that opposed Reagan's Central American policy. So one of the first things, so was big, I'm going to talk about three things, that three consequential actions that the, the Reagan administration did to confront this, this kind of culture of skeptical anti-militarism. And, and, and one of them was the kind of rehabilitation of the ability to surveil and harass domestic dissent. Intelligence agencies, both the FBI and the CIA, again turned their attention to domestic dissenters. They carried out a far-reaching operation against church groups, against public policy foundations, human rights organizations, even congressional offices. Uh, the famous case was, of course, the CISPIS, the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. Activists had uh, activists and CISPIS uh, had, had FBI agents visit their homes and their workplaces. They had hundreds of burglaries of CISPIS offices and other offices that were involved in opposing Reagan's Central American policy. In many ways, a number of uh, civil libertarians have identified this as a kind of resurrection of COINTELPRO-style operations that in the 1960s and 70s targeted the civil rights and the anti-war um, movement. Uh, 
That's one thing that they did, and it was relatively minor, but I, I would say it was consequential, and I think you could say that, see that there's a, a, a direct lineage between, say, the surveillance and uh, wiretapping, but also the surveillance of the Quakers and other anti-war groups uh, today. Now, at the same time, um, the White House, the second thing that they did was, was they, mass, they began to master public, uh, the, the ability to spin public opinion in order to tame an unruly press in Congress the White House established in 1983 a sophisticated public relations unit called the Office of Public Diplomacy. It was headed first by Cuban exile Otto Reich and then by uh, Robert Kagan. The new office was staffed with specialists in psychological warfare, warfare op operations drawn from the CIA and the military. Uh, it was part of the Iran-Contra nexus, a congressional investigation into its activities described the office as a covert activity run on domestic soil, one which illegally used public mo monies in violation of the 1947 National Security Act to manipulate public opinion. The Office of Public Diplomacy perfected many of the tactics that today we, 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 we call swift boating. It brought together the combined power of Madison Avenue public relations firms, supposedly independent new right grassroots organizations and the executive branch to discredit not just the arguments of opponents of Reagan's Central American policy, but the critics themselves. Now the point, uh, according, to the White, uh, according to the White House's communications director, was not to create a consensus for Reagan's wars. Uh, he said that you know, the consensus that existed between 1941 and 1966 is gone and it's not coming back. The point was to prevent an oppositional consensus from congealing, from, from coalescing the way it happened during Vietnam, to overwhelm the public with carefully scripted spin and disinformation. The Office of Public Diplomacy used polls and PR industry perception management techniques to help the administration and its allies to frame debate in the simplest manner possible. It flooded the media with an incredible, I mean, you can go on to the National Security Archive webpage and read Iran-Contra documents and just have a list of tasks to be completed by the Office of Public Diplomacy. These are Office of Public Diplomacy documents themselves. It's just an overwhelmingly sophisticated operation. They flooded the media with an incredible amount of op-eds, letters, uh, white papers, books, often published under the byline of sympathetic scholars. They staged events. They, they developed wedge issues meant to divide uh, progressive supporters from, from Central American, from the Central American left, uh, race, uh, issues about racism and, uh, you know, Sandinistas, uh, also anti-Semitism. Robert, Robert Kagan uh, proposed that the Office of Public Diplomacy, I think it was closed down before they actually went and did this, but that they really go, really go on a campaign showing Sandinista anti-Semitism. Um, and, and distribute these glossy pamphlets uh, with, with, you know, with uh, in their own words, uh, things from key Jewish leaders in, in Nicaragua. Um, uh, they worked, again, as I said, with so-called grassroots organizations to isolate and intimidate critical journalists and congressmen. Uh, uh, a number of journalists were, 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 were harassed. Uh, and even if they weren't harassed, there certainly was. It was, it was the beginning of the, what Eric Alterman calls work, learning to work the refs. So Karen Burns, who was an ABC correspondent, she said, look, it really isn't worth writing a story about Central America because I, I have to spend weeks and weeks and weeks to fact check a three-minute bit because I know it's going to be attacked. I know it's going to be attacked by a highly organized movement, and it's just a career killer, so I'll just report on something else. Other journalists like Robert Parry were discredited and driven out. 
uh, Michael Bonds, a congressman, uh, the Office of Public Diplomacy targeted politicians, key politicians who who um, who, uh, who 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 were steadfast in their opposition to Reagan's Central American policy. I mean, the Reagan administration. I don't want to overblow Democratic opposition. There was a, a wide swath of centrist Democrats that could be worked in other ways. But those who were steadfast opposed, like Michael Bonds, when he when he left when he gave up his House seat to run for Senate, he was targeted in a campaign that that is almost identical to the kind of swift voting techniques that we see today. And again, it served as a war room to to quickly uh, throw out counter-explanations for human rights violations uh, by U.S. allies. And again, the point was to muddy the waters, to, 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 to waste the energies of reporters and human rights organizations uh, 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 with, with other counter-narratives. It was also through the Office of Public Diplomacy that foreign policy was reduced to a series of emotionally-laden talking points. Uh, and again, this was culled through focus groups and polls, which... It was here with the, that they began, it was the Office of Public Diplomacy which suggested that they used the word terrorist to, to refer to the Sandinistas as opposed to communist, beginning to link that conflict in Central America with the U.S.'s deepening involvement in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. Uh, increasingly, uh, you would hear from public, public officials, government officials, uh, kind of linkages, kind of uh, linking the Sandinistas with the PLO, with Arafat, with Gaddafi, with the, even the Baidhaminov gang in Germany. It was just, it was just very, very well-crafted conflation. Um, Public diplomacy was designed not just to fear, but also to inspire. It was through this office and through these poll words that this kind of more idealistic language, polling and and keyword lists, that that began to insert itself into the administration's rhetoric. Uh, Revolution in the name of democracy became a marketing device. Office of Public Diplomacy memos uh, advised public government officials to the need to refer to the Contras not as the Contras, but as new revolutionaries or as freedom fighters fighting in the American tradition, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the third thing that that the Reagan White House did, so one thing was kind of resurrection of COINTELPRO-style activities. Uh, Second thing was learning how to manipulate the press in a much more effective manner. The third thing, and I think most consequential, is that the White House began to mobilize, in order to counter domestic opposition, its evangelical base. As part of that extensive Iran-Contra network, Christian businessmen raised money for arms and began to fund the myriad organizations that worked closely with the White House to sway public opinion and congressional votes in favor of Reagan's wars. Uh, Working closely with Oliver North, groups like Phyllis Shafley's Eagle Forum sent down Freedom Fighter, Friendship kits to the Contras, complete with toothpaste, insect repellent, uh, and a Bible. A kind of slew of newly formed Pentecostal and dispensational groups, Gospel Crusades Incorporated, Friends of the Americas, Operation Blessing, World Vision, Harvesting in Spanish, likewise shipped hundreds of tons of humanitarian aid to anti-communist allies in Central America. They established health clinics, uh, religious missions, broadcast radio shows, schools, etc. Now, this outsourcing of the hearts and minds component of the low-intensity wars in Central America had two critical consequences. First, it furthered the transformation of the Republican Party into a populist party, dependent on an expansive militarist foreign policy in order to hold its coalition together. Uh, the, obviously, the, the contradictions 
within the new right base between secular neocons and the Christian right and between free marketeers and old, old school law and order anti-communists were many. It was kind of foreign policy and a strong national security state was the kind of glue that held it together. The second consequence uh, of this mobilizing the evangelical base was it began to increase the involvement of conservative Christians in foreign policies. It began to it provided the gathering new right the opportunity to confront directly, not just contain and not just divide that skeptical anti-militarism, but to confront it to directly, to kind of offer their, 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 their alternative to the creeping humanism that began to infect America's political culture. Um, the Central American left that Reagan fought against was motivated as much by Catholic liberation theology, a kind of current within Christianity that sought to align the church with the poor and advocated a re redistribution of wealth in order to achieve social justice, as it was by Marxism. Some historians, some scholars identify the Central American revolutions as Christian revolutions. At the same time, in the United States, domestic opposition to Reagan's Central American policy, much more than the protests against Vietnam in the 1960s and early 70s, was noticeably Christian. Groups such as the Religious Task Force on El Salvador, the Ecumenical Program on Central America and the Caribbean, the U.S. Catholic Con Conference, Witness for Peace, the Quakers, the National Council of Churches, actively mobilized hundreds of thousands of Christians to oppose aid to the Contras or to El Salvador, or aid to El Salvador and Guatemala. And it was the shared hostility to, to peace Christianity, to Christian humanism, that I, I, try to, I try to sketch out in the book that united mainstream conservative Protestants and pulpit-thumping fundamentalists, old-school militarists and first-generation neocons who made up, for instance, the Committee of Santa Fe, one of these uh, neoconservative uh, uh, po foreign policy uh, lobbying groups, um, called on the U.S. to roll back and not just react against liberation theology Gene Kirkpatrick identified, quote, liberation theology in Latin America as a kind of Catholic version of the doctrine of Western guilt for third world poverty. This notion of guilt, this notion of kind of one of the tasks of the new writer is restoring American confidence in the world. And, one, and the way to do that was to overcome this sense of guilt of American power, of American prosperity, right, which, which, which somebody like Kirkpatrick, intellectuals from the conservative movement, identified as kind of coming over and paralyzing the old Democratic Party. Evangelicals like Ruchus John Rostuni, the founder of Christian Reconstructionism, kind of influential branch of the evangelical movement that seeks to replace the Constitution with biblical law, describe liberation theology as, quote, the economics of Satan, uh, while another preacher labeled liberation theology, uh, theology of mass murder, the single most critical problem that Christianity has faced in all of its 2,000-year history. Now, it, it was in opposition to, to liberation theology that the conservative movement really began to articulate, I, I think, a, a particularly the religious, but also the secular branch, of the, a, a kind of forward-looking, positive vision of society, not just reacting against the, the, the anti-militarism and the humanism that they felt like they were, that had overcome the United States. The three main struts, I think, of, of the kind of neoconservative consensus gets developed to a large degree, surprisingly so, in opposition to liberation theology. One is a kind of celebration or remoralization of the market. Uh, the second thing is the role of the United States in the world. 
And the third is this kind of remoralization of militarism that I talked about. Uh, in other words, well before neocons and theocons teamed up to fight radical Islam, liberal Christianity was the first political religion that united the new right. So take, for instance, the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Today, the neoconservative Institute on IRD, Institute on Religion and Democracy, is a key player in the Bush coalition, working hard to discredit liberal religious organizations that oppose Bush's wars as, long, as well as the preemptive militarism behind them. Two of its main theologians, Michael Novak and John Newhouse, uh, uh, Richard, John Richard Newhouse, have provided the White House with key theological justification for its militarist foreign policy. The Institute on Religion and Democracy, it turns out, was founded in 1981 by, by intellectuals associated with the American Enterprise Institute, and it was advised by PR firms contracted by the White House. It became part of that nexus that surrounded the Office of Public Diplomacy. Its mission was to provide mainstream religious support for Reagan's Central American policy. Both Novak and Newhouse liked to present themselves as political liberals at the time. Uh, yet it immediately allied with evangelicals like Jimmy Swaggart, Jerry Forwell, and Pat Robinson to take on liberation theology. Looking back, it's amazing how much of Michael Novak's early writings was explicitly concerned with refuting liberation theology, with establishing what Novak called a, quote, theology of the corporation. Novak, along with others at the Institute on Religion and Democracy, sought to elaborate a series of a, a set of ideals specific to the free market that could complement the Christian understanding of free will. In particular, Novak dedicated much of his work to challenging liberation theology's insistence that third world poverty could be blamed on, uh, on economic exploitation by the first world. He argued instead that a Latin America's economic backwardness uh, must be blamed on cultural factors specific to Spanish Catholicism. Now, as did their mainstream co-religionists, fundamentalists, evangelicals, began to formulate their free market moralism as a quarrel with liberation theology. Where liberation theology, this is one of the most surprising things when I was researching this book, is how much actually, you know, there was a sense maybe in the 2004 campaign that if you, if you look below the surface, that if you could just neutralize issues, cultural issues and social issues like gay rights or abortion, uh, you, you, you'd be able to convince a, a big part of the evangelical or religious right community to support a New Deal Democrat that would, that would restore the regulatory state. But I was actually surprised at how much at least the intellectual leaders of the evangelical movement were deeply committed to the rise of, uh, to the restoration of, of free market absolutism. Where, li where liberation theologians held that humans could fully realize their potential here on earth Evangelical economists argued that attempts to distribute wealth and regulate production was based on an incorrect understanding of society, an understanding that incited disobedience to proper authority by high highlighting economic inequality. They held that the profit motive, rather than being an amoral me economic mechanism, as was a kind of large part of the kind of critique of the, you know, of, uh, from the left or from, from liberals in the 1970s, and as well as the religious left, that aside from, apart from being, rather than being an amoral economic mechanism, it was part of a divine plan to discipline fallen man and make him produce. Man lives in a fundamentally scarce world, Christian economist John Cooper argued, not an abundant one, only in need of more equitable distribution, as the liberation theologians would have it. As did Michael Novak, evangelicals sought to rebut liberation theology's critique of the global political economy. According to evangelical Ronald Nash, 
Third world poverty has, quote, a moral, cultural, and even religious dimension that reveals itself in a lack of respect for private property. Uh, some took this argument to its logical conclusion. Gary North, another influential evangelical economist, insisted that the third world problems are religious, moral perversity, a long history of demonism and outright paganism. The citizens of the third world ought, uh, ought to feel guilty. Again, that word guilt ought to feel on, uh, fall down on their knees and repent from their godless, rebellious, socialistic ways. They should feel guilty because they are guilty both individually and collectively. Now, evangelical Christianity's elaboration of a theological justification for free market capitalism, along with its view of an immoral third world, began to resonate with other ideological currents in the new right, laying the groundwork for today's embrace of empire as, as America's national purpose. In a universe of free will, where good work is rewarded and bad work punished, the very fact of American prosperity was considered a self-evident confirmation of God's blessing of U.S. power in the world. Third world misery, in contrast, was proof of what evangelicals like to call God's curse. Uh, David Shilton, again, also of the Reconstructionist Institute for Christian Economics, wrote that, quote, poverty is how God controls heathen cultures. They must spend so much time surviving that they are unable to exercise ungodly dominion over the earth. Now, of course, Michael Novak and Newhouse would not use such stark terms. Yet the sentiment is just a step removed from their logic. After all, the Institute for Religion and Democracy's mission statement uh, anointed America to be, quote, the primary bearer of the democratic possibility uh, in the world today. And I think such an opinion nestles very comfortably with evangelical notions of, of America as a redeemer nation, and it finds its way, kind of saturates Bush's foreign policy pronouncements and justifications. But there's other ways in which the religious right kind of began to develop an affinity of worldview with other, other currents within, within, the concert, within the broader new right. The, the religious right's sense of itself as a persecuted uh, peoples that engaged in a life and death end time struggle between the forces of good and evil mapped easily onto the absolute, uh, absolutism of anti-communist militarists, particularly those involved in Central America. In confronting a common threat, Christian humanism, Theological distinctions that separated evangelicals from Catholics began to break down, paving the way for today's transnational and transdenominational religious right. Many of the militarists who executed the Contra War, John Singlab, CIA Director William Casey, Oliver North, were themselves members of either Protestant or Catholic ultra-conservative sects, such as the Charismatic Church of the Apostles, Opus Dei, and the Knights of Malta. Catholic uh, William Casey attended Mass daily. Uh, his mansion was said to be filled with statues of the Virgin Mary. Uh, it's kind of like a Central American Da Vinci Code or something. Now, throughout the 1980s, as its inv inv involvement in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala, and Honduras deepened, fundamentalists began to share with Reaganite neocons a common set of assumptions about the world and America's role in it. Uh, the U.S. had grown dangerously weak, and when neocons called for a renewal of political will, evangelical, uh, evangelicals believed that America's revival would come about through spiritual rebirth. Uh, working closely with neoconservative policy intellectuals, such as Elliot Abrams, Otto Reich, Robert Kagan, Jean Kirkpatrick, conservative evangelical theologians established a moral justification for the rehabilitation of militarism. They began to align their theology to incorporate elements of both the idealism 
and unflinching militarism that led straight to war in Iraq and today makes torture a central tool in, uh, in the United States' civilizational mission. Uh, increasingly in the 1980s, evangelical intellectuals began to link their understanding of biblical fulfillment more directly to the fortunes of a remilitarized state. Our government, wrote Jerry Falwell in 1980, but sounding a lot like George Bush in 2002, has the right to use its armaments to bring wrath upon those who would do evil uh, hurting other people, by hurting other people. And not just defensively, but preemptively. Uh, Rush Walton, another evangelical uh, theologian and economist, wrote in 1988, even as the Cold War was winding down, that we must go on the offensive. So, and in other ways as well, the kind of the violence of counterinsurgent wars began to stoke the fires of, of, of fundamental Manichaeism, leading Forwell, Robinson, and others to ally with some of the mur worst murderers and torturers in Central and Latin America. Uh, Pat Robinson described the genocide carried out by, by Guatemala's uh, Efrayano Rios Montes, what he called a miracle. He had him on the, this, the, this TV show regularly. Uh, along with more than a dozen Christian New Right organizations, the moral majority heralded the murderer of Salvadoran Archbishop Oscar Romero as a hero, presenting him with a plaque honoring his continuing efforts for freedom. And I have a lot of other examples of, of defense of, of some of the worst, worst, uh, worst brutes in, in, in Central and Latin America. So when Jean Kirkpatrick remarked in 1981 that the three nuns and one lay worker who were raped mutilated and murdered by Salvadoran security forces were not just nuns, they were political activists. She was being more than cruel. She was signaling a disapproval of a particular kind of peace Christianity and, and sounding a battle cry in, in what was the New Right's first religious crusade. So I just want to close by saying that I think that we need a new way to talk about Latin America, uh, U.S.'s relations with Latin America. It's, it's, the metaphor that's often used is, is the U.S.'s backyard. But I would say that, uh, that maybe perhaps a better metaphor would be strategic reserve, a kind of place where the United States turns to to regroup following these moments of crises. And I talked briefly about the New Deal. Then I talked extensively about the New Right. And here we are once again, I think, at another historical crossroads. It's a recession of U.S. power caused by military overreach crosses paths once again with the remobilized Latin America. And I guess the question that, uh, that I'll just leave with, because I guess we're running out of time, we should open up for questions, is, uh, is, is will once again the United States turn to Latin America regroup? And if it does, what will that turn look like? I'll just end there. Thank you. Well, uh, the first question, I mean, they're both really big questions. I, can, I, um, 
I guess I'm of the school that believes that you can't separate economics from ideology and and and, and politics. That 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 it, it's it's kind of pointless, although it's interesting. I think I think with within what drives U.S. U.S.'s policy in Latin America in the, in the long haul, both in the time period I'm talking and before, obviously economics has a lot to do with it. The access to resources, access to markets. Uh, now, with the financialization of 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 of, of, the, of the global political economy, the role Latin America has played in that has been crucial. Um, I guess what I was trying to do was was look in a more holistic way in the way that ideology intersects with it. In the book, I, I talk extensively about the role of economics, both both as a, as, as in, again in the in the long run, but then also specifically in this turn. Um, one of the arguments that I make. And I don't really talk about it in the, in the talk because it's just too much already as it is. Um, is is the restructuring that takes place that 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 during this transition from the New Deal political order to the to the New Right political order, and Reagan's embrace of and the rise of the and and the decline of 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 that East Coast corporate establishment that supported the New Deal state from the you know 1930s up until the, up until the late 60s that you know not protected uh, having no competition in terms of prices and wages as a result of the you know the post World War II order they could allow that they could allow with a certain they could act with a certain sense of confidence in the world allow the extension of political liberalism at home and some degree of reform capitalism abroad obviously only to certain limits right Abends and Guyot in Brazil and Allende in Chile wouldn't be tolerated, but to some degree there was a sense of this kind of containment liberalism, containment Keynesianism. They, they would allow as kind of a, a degree of some kind of reform capitalism. What begins to happen? What I talk about more specifically in the book is 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 at the same time that that old chauvinist base of the right begins to become more internationalist with the shifting of the of the economic political gravity from the northeast to the southwest and the south right that 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 part of the story here this internet the rise of, of christian of new right internationalism is this 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 economic restructuring which 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 they become much more implicated and much more embedded in the world international economy that happens concurrently with with the, the with that old corporate establishment coming under siege and becoming more threatening and making their peace with the with the rising Reagan revolution. So somebody like David Rockefeller, for instance, who is the Benoit of the of the religious right and the and the and the old right, right, and uh, and considered kind of the the republic liberal wing of the Republican Party and and part of the New Deal order. Um, he. Right after Reagan's election, he makes peace with 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 the Reagan, with the Reagan revolution and and does a tour of Latin America, telling he, he he stops at all the dictatorships. It's 1980, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, one after the other, and he and he basically tells him he, he goes down even before Jean Patrick. Jean Patrick makes that same tour, but it's it, I'm using him as an example of this kind of conf, kind of almost a perfect storm of the increasing internationalization of the old nationalist right and the increasing. Uh, um, Bellicosity of the old internationalist corporate order. The fusion of those two accounts for the rise, the rise of this kind of militarist state, uh, and that's that's one of. The, and I'm just giving an example of one of the ways that I deal with economics in the book, and then obviously the whole restructuring that happens under Clinton, which I don't really really talk. Clinton's kind of institutionalization of a lot of the stuff that happens under, under Reagan. In terms of the second question, I think part of what's interesting mostly about these challenges is that they happen. They're, they're imminent critiques, right? They happen within 
within a kind of set of values that we can understand. So it's always about defining what's out. So it's always within the set of enlightenment values, communism and socialism, the Sandinistas. And so, right, so what I think what, what the war on terror is that it's, it's now we're confronting an enemy that could be cast as outside of the values of the West, where the social movements in Latin America always operate within that logic. So it's always about a fight over defining these ideals, right? Defining the, the nature of Americanism, right? I mean, the, the, if these are not anti-American in any way, it's a fight over the definition of America. And I think that that's the historic importance of these, of these movements in Latin America in terms of their challenge to U.S. power because it forces the U.S. to react. And the New York Times article made fairly clear that Bush's tour of Latin America is a specific response to Chavez and Chavez's challenge. <laughs> oh, I don't know. What you mean? She was a reporter in New York. I, 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 I believe she did a lot of coverage, but I could just be misremembering. I don't. I don't know if I ever came. No, I mean, I, I could have missed it. Okay. Yeah, and I guess that's what, what I mean. Yeah, I don't think those two things were imposed, uh, opposed in the way with the U.S. U.S. goes to re, 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 renew itself and, and, and it reshapes. That's one of the comments that I made earlier about the looking at Latin America as a shape, place that shapes domestic politics. Yeah, I mean, uh, twice Nicaraguan peasants <laughs> restruck, re, you know, not just not just under Reagan, but in in the 1930s, uh, the, the Sandino, Reagan's spiritual <laughs> spiritual kin. Um, his five-year insurgent war against 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 U.S. Marines, which is part of a larger movement of opposition and insurgencies against U.S. occupations throughout the Caribbean, and that rising that rising opposition to U.S. militarism really made U.S. that that old model in which the U.S. I mean, it was you know, the rise of the U.S. as a power you know, happens at a different moment. That direct colonialism is no longer viable. Yet these new the new form that will, you know hasn't hasn't kind of emerged. Yet, what shape that kind of multilateral order, you know, hasn't taken shape, and the fact that that this opposition, and it wasn't just wasn't just insurgencies in Central America, it was rising anti. I mean, use the word anti-Americanism, just even though I don't really like it, but rising anti-Americanism throughout South America, from Venezuela to to Chile, really made it untenable. They had to figure out a new way to project their power, and Roosevelt's when Roosevelt first used the phrase, I mean. Security s scholars here probably know this a lot better than I do. When he first used the phrase good neighbor policy in his, in his 1933 inauguration, he didn't specifically refer to Latin America. It was just a paragraph long about U.S. foreign policy in general. I mean, it was 1933. People were concerned about the Depression, not about foreign policy. And he, you know, he said, I dedicate, you know, we will dedicate the United States to being a good neighbor to the world or something like that. 
but it turns out the world wasn't really buying. I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the world, and the ability of the United States to influence what was going on elsewhere was very limited. So Roosevelt specifically turns to Latin America, and his embrace of, um, of the non-intervention, pledge of non-intervention, which he didn't want to do, which is when he sent his Secretary of State down to Montevideo for the Pan-American Conference, he specifically instructed them not to sign on to the non-intervention pact. But, but this was a long, this was a long, the, the principle of non-intervention was a long-standing demand of Latin American jurists that, that was really well thought out. It wasn't just this idea. It was this whole new way of thinking about international diplomacy. Latin American jurists, particularly in Chile and in Argentina, had, had began to elaborate what they called new Ameri uh, international, American international law, a new American international law, or something like that, in which, in which non-intervention was the central plank of it, as well as you know, also a, a whole bunch of other, other, other issues. And so that, that, that embrace of that idea and the forcing of the United States to abandon militarism as well as the diplomatic justification of militarism really did lead to a, 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 a remarkable restructuring of domestic politics, and it, and it reshaped domestic politics in all sorts of ways. I, I, gave, I, gave, I lost a few points, but one of the things was that the, the goodwill created by that, by that move on Roosevelt, by Roosevelt's part, really allowed them to sign all of these, what were equivalent to free trade agreements. Uh, Roosevelt was granted fast-track authority to, to sign free trade agreements, and he signed one after the other leading up to the year, leading up to, pre, you know, before World War I broke out, uh, World War II broke out, I'm sorry. Uh, that really allowed the U.S. to economically recover. It really consolidated that corporate block, an export-oriented corporate block that I talked about earlier that became the, the bedrock foundation of the New Deal state that allowed, that, that allowed, so there's all sorts of ways in which this opposition to U.S., Politics within, within, within an imperialized periphery, as you put it, uh, restructured domestic politics. Or the way it all comes in different currents, yeah. 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 I mean, it totally is. I mean, you know, I don't. I don't like to think in a you know in a, in a very flat way. I think that there's. I think there's 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 new consequences that have come up. I and mean, for instance, a big evangelicals support Chavez in Venezuela, right? So it's not all. So it's not not all evangelicals, but a big, uh, there's a big chunk of evangelicals that support Chavez in Venezuela. So so it's the experience on the ground leads to different outcomes, but. Certainly, the defeat of the left and the defeat of, of the socialist project in Latin America created a vacuum in all sorts of ways that was filled by, by the rise of evangelical communities, the defeat of liberation theology. Uh, I mean, this in, in, very, in very specific, clear, and explicit ways, that very organized and, and thought out ways, but also just the, the cultural effects of, 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 of the defeat of this, of, this, of this vision for how to organize society created a vacuum. Um, just what, but I wanted to come back to that point. But that doesn't mean that all evangelicals now are conservative. I mean, they, there is there is a strong conservative movement. But evangelicals support the work. I mean, there are sectors within the evangelical community in Brazil that support the Workers' Party. 
right? So just like, just like liberation theology grew out of, in many ways, in many places, particularly in Central America, grew out of uh, Catholic action, which in the 1950s was a very conservative anti-communist movement, which was, sent, was, which was designed to extend the Catholic Church's authority into, area, into rural areas that were seen as, as, as running wild and, you know, and, and instill a certain kind of Catholic orthodoxy and, and be a kind of anti-communist bulwark. The experience on the ground of trying to just deal with the problems of everyday life led to a radicalization of Catholic action, and that became, in many ways, in many places, liberation theology. So, yes, there is this, yes, the evangelical, the, the, the rise of evangelical and dispensationalist movement in Latin America are directly linked, I think, in many ways to what I'm talking about, but it also has consequences that escape it. Um, I mean, it's a great question, and, and, and the late pope and the current popes. I, yeah, I think that the popes, the pope was a, one of these world historical figures. I, you know, if, if you if you contrast his early, during his early years, he was pretty anti-capitalist. You know, I mean, like, you know, if you, you know, even though he was against liberation theology for all sorts of theological reasons, and he, and he, and he went, and he, and he did a lot to restructure and remove people and defrock people and, 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 and reassign people in order to weaken the institutional power of liberation theology in Latin America, as well as to lecture about liberation theology have, having gone too far and its analysis being fundamentally wrong. Yes, we do have to have a concern for the poor, and yes, capitalism is, is, uh, is, is an immoral, amoral system, immoral system. But what's interesting about, uh, what's interesting about Pope John Paul is that he his 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 critique of capitalism actually softened as as he went along in his you know if you read his early early um, comments on cap you know he was he was he was pretty scathing against co- communism and capitalism alike and liberation he would he would fold liberation theology I think into communism but then towards towards the end he, he I mean he still had this you know that society is a is a social organism and we have to care for the poor and he had a critique of materialism and a critique of um, criti- basically a critique of materialism and secularization that, it was a, that attends cap- capitalism. But his, the more fundamental critique of capitalism that, that, that he had embraced early on in the early 1980s. Now, I don't know if that reflects, you know, if, if he's a mirror to changing morals that are happening in society and that, that general shift throughout, throughout the way people thought about the market. Or if, or if he was, if he saw himself more as an agent and taking advantage of that opening and pushing it forward, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know his motives. But his opposition to liberation theology, if it, if it actually led to the weakening of liberation theology, I, I mean, I think institutionally it certainly did. I think, I think that there are other factors that led to the, led to the, led to the decline of liberation theology. But I think that decline has leveled off. I mean, in Paraguay, there's, you know, there's a, there's a priest running for. The presidency that uh, that is very much operates within the, within the idiom of liberation theology. I don't know what his background is. Um, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right.
overall, you reviewed the uh, Reagan administration's policy of uh, success in, in, in uh, gaining its, own, its ends, you know, combating socialism in Central America. Not, not necessarily putting democracy, that part's interesting. <laughs> but, but, you know, so what's your, you know, given that you're saying this is a, a framework that we're seeing repeated now, uh, you know, do you care to come back to a little bit about what you think the uh, outcome of I mean, I mean, I don't know what Bush's policy in, in, in oh in the Middle East. Yeah. Oh, in the Middle East. I was thinking Latin America. No, I mean, oh, I thought. I mean, it's I, it's fairly clear that they failed. I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I get well, you I get imagine. <laughs> But I, well, I think that Central America was inconsequential ultimately. They, I mean, the United States could, and the fallout didn't matter. I mean, the, the, the amount of destruction and devastation and ongoing misery. I mean, Central America is a, is a fairly devastated and bankrupt place in all sorts of ways. I mean, it's hard to imagine. And this is a place that's squarely within the U.S.'s sphere of influence. And the, U, and the U.S., I mean, not only did it not fulfill or carry forth its thunderous pledges of democracy and development that it promised if it would just, you know, cast aside the left, or, or, or the revolutionary left. I mean, I mean, the United States, if, if it's not able to bring you know, any kind of meaningful democracy to a place like Central America, it's hard to, hard to understand how they think they're going to be able to do it in the Middle East. I mean, there's a way in which, and this goes back to the economics versus ideology question, there's a way in which ideology has kind of escaped its economic moorings, you know, and, 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 and we, I, I think part of it is that neocons really do believe the hype. What happens in Central America, it's interesting, and I didn't have time to talk about it, it's, it's kind of, because it happens simultaneously with the end of the Cold War, so the United States both wins the Cold War, in, in very crude terms, it wins the Cold War and it wins in Central America. It wins the Cold War, arguably, because of restraint, because of moderation, because of, because it, do, because it actually, you know, because it just, you know, it waits out the, 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 the Soviet Union, which is imploding under its own weight. It wins in Central America because of the hot, neocon hard line, their vision. So there's this weird conflation after the end of, after the end of the Cold War is that the reason that in, in the neocon psyche, why that that the reason why the United States won the won the Cold War is because they responded with a hard line. You know, they kind of extrapolate from Central America to the rest of the world, and I think that's a that's a really a, an that has been an incredibly dangerous conflation. And this is one of the reasons why Central America, not just in the terms of the recycled personnel that I talked about, kept bubbling up through the the substrata of the of the of the of the of the, of the, of the Bush administration. So, in nineteen. You know, in the president, vice presidential debate, when they asked Dick Cheney what he hoped to happen <laughs> in, in Iraq, he doesn't, he, inexplicably, he doesn't talk about post-World War II Germany or Japan, right, the two jewels in American history of terms of what we managed to do after, during military occupation. He says, he, he, he mentions El Salvador, like <laughs> El Salvador, you know, he says, you know, he talks about El Salvador as a place, you know, that, you know, okay, and then, and then there's also the way in which Central America, Continued to bubble up in, in you know, in, in the commentary of people like William Crystal and National Review and, 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 and others and Robert Kaplan and the Salvador option and, you know, all sorts of ways that, you know, essentially can't, you know, they can't keep the, it keeps on popping up because there's, there's a way in which I think that it, it did re, and, and in the debates, um, and, the, and again, ideology uh, breaking free of its economic logic and, and which they really believe their own stories that they told about themselves, the neocons, and also, I think, not just the, neo, you know, not just the neocons, but um, 
in the in the in the uh, 1998 or 1999 Iraqi Freedom Act that was signed under Clinton, in which the Senate, I think, passed unanimously, made regime change the uh, the uh, the the, the for official foreign policy of the United States, and this was under Clinton, not under Bush. Um, a number of Republicans cited Nicaragua as the example of why they needed to do the same thing in, in, in Iraq. And I guess going back to the, your question is, I think that the, to, it's one thing to do it in Central America, which in some ways, you know, which had no consequential allies, unlike Vietnam, which had two superpowers we had that, that could restrain the United States. There was no, uh, there was no, no, no major resources, uh, no, you know, no real geopolitical, uh, uh, despite Gene Kirkpatrick's uh, uh, elevation of its importance, I think to do it in the hot oil heartland of the world, uh, I mean, it's just it's been a huge disaster. I mean, I don't know if anybody has a different opinion at this point, <laughs> you know. But I, isn't, I mean, it seems to be fairly consensus that. Well, the story that does have some, I think it's the Vietnam story. It seems like that's taking shape, isn't it? That that the hands were tied, but the hands were tied by the, by the, you know, that if you know, if only the, Ameri you know, if only we went in there and did what we had to do. I mean, this is already the neoconservative critique of the Bush administration, right? The critique of Rumsfeld that, you know, he went, you know, instead of going in there with the army that we needed, you know, we went in there with the stripped down army to, you know, yeah. Yeah. In support of, of Pinochet and the Alfred Dirty War and uh, Argentina, as well as uh, El Salvador, but also obviously Afghanistan was in, in, in Africa as well. And don't have anything to do with economics. I think all they care about is that these countries don't play, fight up a tough way to play with the Soviet Union. But also to exacerbate the Soviet Union's problems of taking money and passing it to this country before heading off to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, setting aside the economics versus politics, and this goes back to what drives U.S. foreign policy, I don't think those two things can be separate. I think that it's not a, it's not a self-evident assumption that the United States should have fought the Cold War the way it fought it, or that Reagan just saw Central America going this way and decided to act that way. But I think it's it obviously gets situated within the cold within the Cold War, within the rhythms of the Cold War, right? The Second Cold War, the re, the the kind of the the the, the rearming of this, what some people have called the Second Cold War, the rearming of the Cold War. Uh, Reagan's, you know, the, the multiple crises of the 1970s, which would be hard, you'd be hard pressed to blame that on the Soviet Union. The United States' defeat in, in Vietnam, Watergate, the economic crisis that w w that led to that led to an you know enormous recession of U.S. power in all sorts of ways, and led to a, 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 the reemergence of a corporate class with a unity of action committed to defending its interests in the regulatory realm. Um, all of those crises, uh, obviously they're related to the Cold War, but, but, but they're not directly related to the Cold War. And I think, what, I think the Reagan revolution 
the, the, the task of the new right was to the historic task of the new right and all and its and the way, and, and as as a coherent social movement and as the as the as the movement which emerges which ascends and and, 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 and and emerges with a coherent vision of the world to respond to those multiple crises in the 1970s and the argument is that the, the central america becomes the, the scene of, of you know that really kind of in which that coherence gels um, so yeah it, it, it certainly takes place within the cold war but there's not a self evident there's not a self evident uh, Assumption that the United States should have responded the way it did to the Soviet. You, you see these small countries as dominoes, and Reagan's talking about you know, the, 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 the But just to say Reagan sees countries as dominoes, I mean, just look at. But we have we have to unpack how Reagan, why Reagan sees things the way he does, right? And that's what I tried to do. Okay, I, I think he's an anti. But there's a right. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, and I, I guess what I'm trying to look at is is why Reagan and Reagan, as the representative of a social movement, believed in rollback. That it's not as self-evident. Well, the same reason that John Kennedy believed in I guess, as an historian, I think that it's important to understand to unpack beliefs and understand the social movements that's, that well, that that makes certain beliefs dominant and ascendant. Yeah, it just seems to be easy to be explained almost entirely by a simple Cold War perspective that any place the Soviet Union gains in any sense, even atmospheric, is bad. It's a zero-sum game. But don't you? Okay, here's a question to you. Do you think that Carter would have responded the same way as Reagan did if he won the 1980 election in Central America? Uh, probably not. So then, isn't isn't it an historical? Isn't that an historical question that needs to be asked? Right. Right. No, but so then, but then the point, then I guess what I'm trying to say is, as as scholars, we have to explain that difference, and that's what I'm right, and the so and the. Carter represented a different, a different political coalition in the United States and a different way of thinking about foreign policy. In many ways, Carter represented a de the declining uh, New Deal order that was trying to fig kind of figure out different ways to respond to these crises, trilateralism, detente, the, extent, the extension of detente, all sorts of things. Then you know the, the, they obviously were very faltering responses, and then the, the, the emergence of the new right as the dominant ascendant political coalition in this country and the way they responded to the crisis, I guess, is the point of what I was trying to do. Cut exactly. He cut off the Guatemalans. <laughs> right. Right. Any other questions?
we need to close. Oh, okay. You've, you've kept us uh, fascinated for a long time. We usually end not shortly after one, mm. so. I talked, I didn't end until no, shortly after one. Everyone <laughs> didn't see anyone uh, defecting, so they all voted with their feet. They stayed here. I want to thank the history department and Ken Andrian particularly. It's clearly one of the departments we work with most closely, and I'm very grateful always to be able to collaborate. And I'm very grateful to you, Greg. What Thanks a wonderful so tour de force of uh, oh. the origins of the new rights. Thank you very much. <laughs>